This is a text of great difficulty. Difficulty for Jesus and difficulty for us. Because this is about temptation. Something we all face and something at which we all fail. Show us how Jesus doesn't fail. Show us how Jesus faces temptation. Show us how Jesus trusts God and his word. Show us just who Jesus is. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. And as always for this, we need your grace to learn from you this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Elisha, there is a slide with a closing prayer. Well, we just introduced a few new members uh, to you this morning, which is always a great thing. When the elders conduct new member visits with people joining the church, one of our elders is well known for asking penetrating questions. And we're having another class on Saturday, February 23rd. And this particular elder is on sabbatical. So... You should really join now. Just saying. Anyway, one of the questions this particular elder has been known to ask, I'm not going to tell you who it is, just his initials are Mark Rist. Um, and anyway, one of the questions this particular elder is known to ask is, who is Jesus? And in your answer to that question, somewhere there needs to be Something along the lines of Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and then you're good. And really, this elder is quite gentle and very kind, but we, meaning me, just like to give him a hard time. He's also a big hip-hop fan. But I thought, you know something? Not only is that a good question, who is Jesus, but that question is the main question of the Gospel of Matthew. And in particular, that question is the main question of our passage today in Matthew 4, which deals with the temptation of Christ. Now, most sermons on this passage deal with the difficulty of facing temptation and the steps we should take to overcome it, none of which is bad, and some of which I'll get to later on. However, I don't believe that's the main point of the text. The main point of the text is to answer this question, who is Jesus. And actually, we should have a fairly complete answer to that by now for those of you who have been here uh, for the last several weeks. We've been given several clear answers to it in the first three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. First verse of Matthew presents Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the verses that follow approve that combination with the titles from Jesus' genealogy. The account of Jesus' birth reveals him as the one who uh, will, Matthew 1.21, save his people from their sins. And then two verses later, Matthew 1.23, he's revealed as Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the second chapter, there are Gentile magi, the wise men from the east, who seek Jesus, as we're told in Matthew 2, verse 2, as the king of the Jews. And then in Matthew 2.11 we read, they fell down and worshipped him. <coughs> Could be a long morning. I brought the heavy duty stuff today. 
So we move on to chapter 3. John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Messiah. And most impressive at his baptism, <coughs> we hear the voice of God coming down from heaven that says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So there you have it, son of David, son of Abraham, Emmanuel, God with us, king of the Jews, Messiah, son of God. It's a pretty impressive list of titles. But in Matthew, we're constantly challenged with, but is Jesus really God's son? Is he really the Messiah? And those are questions worth asking, because not too long after this, even John the Baptist is going to have his doubts. He'll send his disciples to Jesus to ask him in Matthew 11, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Is Jesus really God's son? And that's the question that's answered in this section of the gospel, where we read of Jesus' temptation by Satan. And that's the key question, because each of these three temptations that Jesus faces begins with the phrase, if you are the Son of God. And that's the real challenge here. Satan is questioning Jesus' sonship. He's challenging Jesus' divinity. So let's look at these temptations and see how they answer the question, who is Jesus? We'll start with the first temptation, which deals with the issues of appetite and power. Starting at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I am melting up here. You're just going to have to bear with me for a second. So the chapter begins by saying, since Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Since the initiative in this account is with God, it says he was led up by the Spirit. The necessary starting place is the nature of the temptation. Why would God lead him up here? He is led by God the Holy Spirit. This is not an accident. This is not the Lord stumbling into the way of temptation. This is part of the Father's plan. This is part of the Spirit's work. He is being led into the wilderness to engage in deliberate divine combat with Satan. Now this is not to be taken lightly because our Lord, in the prayer which comes really only a few verses later in this book, is going to instruct us to pray Lead us not into temptation. That prayer is coming from a man who knows what it is to be led into temptation. The Spirit had taken him to this place for the purpose of divine combat. And when the Lord says to us, you pray, lead us not into temptation, he's saying, I know what it is as the sinless Son of God to engage in deliberate divine combat over temptation. You pray that you're not put into that circumstance. 
And don't be so arrogant to think that you can enter into a contest with Satan and come out unscathed. But if you do find yourself there, pray that the Lord would deliver you from the evil one. Rely on me. Notice again, our Lord has now fasted for 40 days like Moses and Elijah in their time in the wilderness. He has fasted. He's physically weakened in preparation for this encounter, but he's spiritually strengthened. He had denied the flesh. He had prepared himself on our behalf. And so in this context of temptation, he engages Satan. Now in English, the word tempt has come to mean almost without exception, tempt to do evil. But the word for tempt in Hebrew and in Greek means to test or to prove. This can include attempting to do evil, but it often it means testing to prove the quality or the value, uh, the good quality of something, as a person might test a gold by submersing it in acid. If the gold is pure, nothing happens. But if it's not, the impurity is burned off. It's in this sense that Abraham was tested by God when he was called to sacrifice his son Isaac, and that Job was tested by the things that happened to him. And when the Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be tempted by Satan, this act is a test designed to show that Jesus really was the Son of God and that he will follow the path that God has laid out for him. So how did Satan go about it? This is where it gets a little tricky. Was it just an internal struggle within the mind of Jesus, or was there an actual appearance of Satan in some form? And it's not an easy question to answer. Aspects of the temptation seem to be physical, such as the suggestion to turn the stones into bread. Um, in fact, when Jesus or when Satan says, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, it seems as if he's pointing at them. In the same way, when he tempts Jesus to throw himself down from the temple, part of the temptation at least seems to be there's going to be a spectacular public display. On the other hand, there is no mountain anywhere in the world, let alone in Palestine, from which the tempter and Jesus could literally see all the kingdoms of the world. That temptation seems to have been visionary. So it's difficult to say exactly how these temptations were expressed or what uh, physical form Satan may have taken. What is clear is that temptations came to Jesus from outside of himself. We're told the devil came to Jesus, took him to the holy city, <coughs> and took him <coughs> to a very high mountain. This is an important distinction. Because the only way Jesus could be tempted is from an outside source, from an outside force, not internally. When we're tempted, we're attacked by an enemy within as well as by temptations from outside. In fact, James chapter 1 says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We're tempted by the flesh that's inside as well as by the world and the devil, which is outside. Jesus had no sinful nature, could only be tempted by something from outside of himself. And that's exactly what happens here. Now, Satan uses three temptations. Turn stones into bread, 
uh, test God by jumping from the temple and escape the cross by falling down and worshiping Satan. And each of these temptations is actually related to what Jesus heard from heaven at his baptism, which we saw last week. Namely, that he's God's beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We saw last week the first part of that endorsement came from Psalm chapter 2, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Jesus is identified as the divine Messiah to whom all the rulers of the world will bow. The second part, though, comes from the prophet Isaiah, as John read from Isaiah earlier this morning. And particularly those passages on the coming king being the suffering servant, which speak of suffering as the only pathway to that triumph. So in verse 3 we read, The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now I think R.C. Sproul is right. It's always good when I agree with R.C. Sproul. Suggests that the real emphasis here is on the word if. If you are the Son of God. In this case, the temptation's focus lies in questioning God. In questioning his earlier statement. God had just said, this is my son. My beloved son. And now Satan comes and says, if. Satan's very good at casting doubt upon what God says. If you remember back in Eden, to which this account is certainly connected, Adam and Eve were tempted to doubt the word of God. God told them they would die if they ate from the fruit of the forbidden tree. But Satan countered, Genesis 3, 4, serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And here, very similar manner, Satan suggests that Jesus may actually not be God's son. Or if he is, then at least he should settle any doubts on the matter once and for all by performing an amazing miracle that would serve no purpose other than to fill his appetite and display his power. <coughs> so underlying all of the temptations is this questioning the express word of God, hidden behind what seems to be a concern for Jesus' hunger. He tempts the Lord to exercise his divine power to bring relief to human suffering, even if it's just his own. He tempts him to think, well, perhaps the Father won't provide for me or provide for my hunger, and I'm famished. I've been without food for 40 days and 40 nights. Perhaps the Father won't provide for me. And he tempts the Lord to an explicit distrust of God's providence. You know, Jesus, perhaps your Father has forgotten you. He's forgotten that you need food out here in the wilderness. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? I know you can do it. After all, you're the Son of God, aren't you? Surely God the Father, who by the Spirit had led the Lord into the wilderness, had a plan by which to bring heavenly manna to the Son. Surely He had a way to provide. He put them there, and Satan wants him to distrust what the Father's doing. However, Jesus has no trouble answering Satan. He did it by quoting a verse from Deuteronomy. He says, we read in verse 4, but he answered, it is written, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If the temptation were merely to misuse his supernatural power, Jesus' reply really wouldn't be to the point. But if the temptation is to doubt the word of God by testing it, then Jesus' answer would mean it doesn't really matter much whether I have physical bread to eat, since God will preserve my life as long as he wants to so I can do what he wants. And I am going to trust him in that. What does matter is whether I believe God's word implicitly or not. If I should doubt his word, even for a moment, then all is lost. Who is Jesus? He's the son of God who already has all the power of divinity. He doesn't need any more from Satan. And he doesn't need to foolishly display his power in order to end his fast. Well, since appetite and power don't work, Satan comes back with plan B. Perhaps this time Jesus will give in to the temptation of approval and glory. Approval and glory, starting at verse 5. That's kind of mean me give two blanks this time. You've got to write more. Deal with it. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So this next temptation comes to us here, really in verse 6. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And the truth of God's word lies behind this temptation as well. Jesus had rejected the devil's first temptation by quoting scripture. So now the devil gets into the act himself, says something uh, like this. Well, I see you are a student of the Bible, since you memorized that verse from Deuteronomy. Of course, I am a Bible student myself. Not long ago, I was reading Psalms, and I came across Psalm 91, which says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways on their hands. They will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You, you do believe that, don't you? I believe it. In fact, I believe it so much, I'm going to make a suggestion. Let's go to the highest point of the temple, and you can jump off. And God will save you. And the people will see the miracle, will realize you're the Messiah, and follow you immediately. It will really make a great impression and get your ministry off to a rip-roaring start. That's somewhat of a paraphrase. Satan tempts Christ to advance the work of God by spectacular and obviously worldly means. Exactly what many evangelicals are doing today when they try to impress people either with signs or wonders or entertainment that's reminiscent of television. In our world, it's usually seen as a means of self-serving glory by trying to earn the approval of others. We cannot accomplish invisible spiritual work by outward worldly means. And at the same time, the devil's suggestion is a temptation to spiritual presumption, to demand a supernatural sign from God in response to an action that he had neither encouraged or commanded. And Jesus replies to this suggestion with another quotation from Deuteronomy. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He means, Satan, you want me to test God, but you have to understand, God is not the one who's being tested here. 
I'm the one who's being tested here. And that means my responsibility is not to challenge my father, but to trust him. And in this reply, Jesus actually introduces an important principle of sound Bible study, which is not only to trust the word of God implicitly and absolutely, but to interpret scripture with scripture. Never taking a verse out of context, but interpreting it by the use of other verses in the Bible as a whole. This is what the Protestant reformers called the analogy of faith. Meaning, simply put, Scripture interprets Scripture. Westminster Confession of Faith expressed it well when it said the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. That doesn't mean we won't encounter passages of the Bible that are difficult to understand. On the contrary, it suggests we will encounter such passages. But at the same time, it says that God is the author of Scripture, and for that reason, the statements of Scripture always complement and reinforce each other when rightly understood. And Jesus knew this, which is why he appealed to Deuteronomy to reject the devil's temptation. When taken as a whole, the Bible will always provide for a consistent way of life, trusting God and his word. Who is Jesus? He's the son of God who already has all the glory of divinity. He doesn't need any more from Satan and he doesn't need to foolishly display his glory in order to win the approval of others. Well, since appetite and approval didn't work and power and glory aren't needed, Satan comes back now with plan C. Surely this time Jesus will give in to the temptation of ambition and kingdom rule. Ambition and kingdom rule. Starting at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. Behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This final temptation comes to us in verses 8 and 9. When the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, they're yours if you fall down and worship me. Jesus, in this temptation, Satan is throwing off all his subtlety. He asks for Jesus to worship him. He shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world all their glory, and offers it all to him in exchange for Christ's worship. This is the only temptation that doesn't directly refer uh, to the words, you are my beloved son. Although they're still in the background here, since they come from Psalm 2, where the father promises the son precisely these kingdoms as his inheritance. In Psalm 2, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth, your possession. This is what Satan is offering to Jesus, but in the world's way, through an alliance with Satan and evil rather than by the cross. Jesus has already been appointed by God to rule the world. Revelation 11 says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. But the path to this triumph is through suffering. And Satan is trying to distract him from the chosen path. He says, I will give you 
everything in the world. I will give you all the kingdoms. I will give you all their glory if you just bow down and worship me. He drops all pretense and makes this final desperate effort to corrupt Jesus. And he reveals his supreme purpose, which is to get Jesus to worship him. And you can imagine this situation by some supernatural accommodation. The devil is showing Jesus the glories of Egypt, the pyramids, the temples, the libraries, the vast treasures. He shows him the power and splendor of Rome with its mighty empire spread over the known world. He shows him the great city of Athens, the magnificent city of Corinth, and of course, the wondrous Jerusalem, the royal city of David, are all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And as God's own proclaimed King of Kings, Jesus has a divine right to all the kingdoms. And it was to that right that Satan appeals in this last temptation. Why should you have to wait for what is already rightfully yours, Jesus? You deserve it now. Why do you submit as a suffering servant? You could reign as a king. I'm only offering you what the Father has already promised. It is a radical distrust of God's plan because he seems to be tempting the Lord Jesus to receive the kingdoms of the world without going the way of the cross. He knows Jesus already has his heart set to the cross. He knew the pain. He knew the sufferings. He knew the humiliation that was going to come by way of the cross. And he says, Jesus, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. I will give you all their glory if you just worship me. You don't have to go to the cross. Satan is offering the world to Jesus on his own corrupt terms, not God's. What the Father promised to the Son because of his righteous obedience, Satan offers to the Son in exchange for his unrighteous disobedience. God's plan in testing the Son was to prove the Son's worthiness to inherit and rule the world. Satan's plan is to draw the Son away from that worthiness by enticing Him to grab the kingdom now that the Father has promised Him. Instead of enduring the long, bitter, humiliating, painful road to the cross and an even longer wait in heaven for God's time to be completed, Jesus, you can rule now. Satan tempts Jesus again to distrust God. How appealing it would have been in the wilderness, famished, realizing what this contest is going to cost him for our Lord to give in. Satan's grand strategy is deception. He couldn't produce in any of these temptations what he promised. He never does. But he presents what is evil in an attempt to convince us that it is good. And so Jesus replies to Satan in verse 10, again, with another verse from Deuteronomy. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In all of Scripture, there's no better example of the power of specific sayings of the word of God to turn Satan away and save the one being tempted. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God who already has all the kingdoms of this world. He doesn't need to get from Satan what's already been guaranteed by the Father. Now, even though I told you this was not the main point of the passage, in reading it, we almost can't help but ask the question, but what about our temptations? What about our temptations? It should be obvious from everything I've said about the temptation of Jesus and how he overcame them, 
there is an indirect application to our lives when we're tempted and have to stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So I think there's some general principles here. I'm not going to give you some specific steps, but three general principles to remember when you're struggling with temptation. The first one is that we face the same battle. We face the same battle. It's helpful to point out when talking about Satan, the devil is not omnipresent as God is. Satan cannot be everywhere tempting everyone all at the same time. He's only a creature. That means he's probably never tempted you or anyone you know directly. In the entire Bible, we only know of a few people who were tempted by Satan directly. Eve, but not Adam. Job, Jesus, Judas, and Ananias, but not Sapphira. But this doesn't mean we don't face spiritual battles every day. Clearly we do. And the Apostle Paul wrote about those battles in his letter to Ephesians, uh, to the Ephesians, Ephesians 6. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he says these battles are so fierce. Paul warns us to be ready for them by arming ourselves with God's armor. We are, again, Ephesians 6, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. In other words, we must be fully equipped for the struggle. We have the same battle. Second principle to remember is we have the same choice. As Jesus did, we have the choice of trusting God and sticking to the path that he has set before us or seeking to win victories for ourselves in the world's way. What will it be? Will we go God's way or will we follow the world, the flesh, and the devil? Joshua challenged the people of his generation. In Joshua 24, he said, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Every temptation, no matter how difficult, gives us the simple choice of belief or unbelief. Following God, or in most cases, following self. If we can remember that choice and make it correctly, we can have the same victory. We can have the same victory. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. True, but what is that path to victory? The temptation of our Lord points the way. It is written. It is written. It is written. As the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians, the only offensive weapon we get is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Remember Christ's example. Here's Jesus, the Holy Son of the Almighty God, the one in whom neither Satan nor man can find any wrong or gain even the tiniest foothold. His eyes are always on the glory of the Father. He lived in the closest communion with Father. But if Jesus, your Lord and Savior, needed to know Scripture in order to resist Satan and win victory of him, how much more do you and I need to know Scripture in order to win a corresponding victory? You must know God's 
word if you're to overcome temptation. God's words are wonderful words. They speak to every need of the human heart. But to be useful to us, the Bible's words must be yours and mine specifically. We have to study them. We have to read them. We have to memorize them. We have to think about them. Only the words of God that we actually know will be useful to us for living for God and overcoming temptation. You need to trust his word. Don't trust your emotions. Don't trust your opinions. Don't even trust your friends. In the wilderness, heed only the voice of God. But even more than that, I think we need to train ourselves to look to Jesus for our salvation. Not just our eternal salvation, but our salvation from temptation. That's the critical takeaway here. When temptation comes, don't look at the temptation. Look at Jesus. Fix your eyes on Him and His Word. Trust Him. Rely on His Spirit through His Word. And by His Spirit, He's here to help us. He promises us that. Hebrews 2. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, it's easy to say what to do when facing temptation. It's far harder for any of us to actually do it. Perhaps you're wrestling with temptation now. Perhaps you're struggling with looking to Jesus. Perhaps your life has gotten too hard. Perhaps you feel like you're living in the wilderness. In the Bible, there's the wilderness of the desert. Parched ground, sharp rock, shifting sand, burning sun, thorns that cut, a miraging oasis, wavy horizons ever beyond reach. That's the wilderness of the desert. But there's also the wilderness of the soul. Parched promises, sharp words, shifting commitments, burning anger, rejections, that cut, miraging hope, and distant solutions ever beyond reach. That's the wilderness of the soul. Some of you know the first. All of you know the second. Jesus knew both. The wilderness was not a typical time for Jesus. Normal was left at the Jordan. Would be rediscovered in Galilee. And though you don't have to journey to Israel to experience the wilderness, a cemetery will do just fine. So will a hospital. Grief can lead you into the desert. So can divorce or debt or depression. We all have received a word of a friend who's going back for chemotherapy. Wilderness. Ran into a couple of men recently who talked about their tough and difficult marriages. Asked them how it was going. It's going, they shrug. Wilderness. We have several friends, some within this church and some elsewhere, and ourselves too, who are struggling with caring for aging parents. Parents who are staring at a future of medical care, assisted living, nursing homes, hospice, and death, waiting in the wilderness. Sometimes you can chalk up wilderness wanderings to transitions. Jesus entered the Jordan River, a carpenter, and he came out a Messiah. Been through any transitions lately? A transfer, a move, a new job? A job promotion, a job demotion, a job loss? If so, be careful. The wilderness is near. 
And how do you know when you're in one? You're lonely. Whether in fact or feeling, no one can help you understand you or rescue you. Doctor after doctor, resume after resume, diaper after diaper, Zoloft after Zoloft, heartache after heartache, the calendar's stuck in February and you're stuck in South Dakota and you don't remember what spring smells like. And the struggle seems endless. In the Bible, the number 40 is associated with lengthy battles. Noah faced rain for 40 days. Moses faced the desert for 40 years. Jesus was led into the wilderness for 40 nights. The battle wasn't limited to three questions. The wilderness is a long, lonely winter. But know this, Jesus went into the wilderness for you. Christ knows the wilderness more than you can imagine. And why does Jesus go to the wilderness? Does the word rematch mean anything to you? For the second time in history, an unfallen mind will be challenged by a fallen angel. The second Adam has come to succeed where the first Adam failed. We can't miss comparing the circumstances of Jesus with those of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they were tempted. However, Jesus faces a test that's far more severe. It's far more difficult. Adam and Eve were in paradise. Jesus is in this vast, desolate wilderness of Judah. Adam and Eve were physically content and satisfied, free to eat from any of the trees of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus was hungry, having fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Adam and Eve were together. They had each other for company and mutual support. Jesus was alone. Adam was challenged to remain sinless in a sinless world. Christ, on the other hand, is challenged to remain sinless in a sin-filled world. And yet Adam and Eve rapidly succumbed to Satan's charm, carrying the entire human race into sin, misery, destruction, and physical and spiritual death, while Jesus stands firm as the Savior who's going to bring life and salvation to the race. Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. The victory, according to the Apostle Paul, is a huge victory for us all. In Romans 5, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. In the message, which is a paraphrase of the Scriptures in modern language, it reads like this. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. In this wilderness, our Lord would meet Satan face to face and he would conquer where Adam failed. Where Adam's failure in the covenant of works plunged the people of the world into the estate of sin and misery, the Lord Jesus Christ would do battle and save his people by his righteousness. The Lord God's giving of us into the hand of Christ is not an act of grace. It's an act of righteousness. Paul so clearly stresses in Romans 1 because the Lord Jesus earned us. And here before our eyes, we see your Lord contest with the one who would sift you like wheat and have your souls. And Jesus wins. But he doesn't do it just for himself. He does it for you. So ask yourself this day this one question. Who is Jesus? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close.
Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. In this passage, we see your son equipped by the spirit in full measure to do battle with Satan, with his kingdom on our behalf. We know that in the end, the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of your son. And so as he has taught us, let's pray together. The words are up on the screen. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom of power. 